People uh, from Canada trying to make their way out and get on evacuation flights out of Sudan, and those flights have now ended. And Canada went in days late and only had about six flights. A lot of our allies started evacuations much, much earlier and had many, many more planes. Eventually, uh, we managed to get 550 Canadians out, but there are a couple of hundred uh, that are left behind and said to be trapped in this area where militant fighting has broken out with Sudan's military. And that happened around the 15th. So the, the warnings to get people out had started around the 15th, and uh, we just showed a plate. Nonetheless, Canadians are now uh, in that country where food is running out, hospitals closing, water, fuel, um, very hard to find. And like uh, Afghanistan, the country is uh, falling, and we've got Canadians now fending for themselves. And my next guest managed to get out. They got about 50,000 people out, and my next guest is one of them, Nizreen uh, El Amin. She went to Sudan on the 9th with her daughter, and they wanted, like so many others, to go to see family, celebrate Eid, and then a week into this trip, they find themselves woken up with bullets flying all around them. Dr. Nasreen El Amin is an assistant professor of African studies at the University of Toronto and joins me now. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I guess a simple question... Um, what was it like to, to get on a, a plane and, and touch down on Canadian soil after everything you'd been through? I mean, to be honest, um, I was feeling many different kinds of emotions, both obviously relief that uh, we're safe, that my three-year-old daughter is safe, that she's reunited with her father, that our family's back together, but also some like real deep sadness for all of my relatives and friends who we left behind in Sudan, um, and especially in Khartoum, who are mm-hmm. still sheltering in place, surrounded by gunfire and explosions and missiles, and uh, where electricity and water in some parts of the city has been cut since the 15th, and where it's quite difficult, actually, to get access to um, the sort of critical um, yeah, food supplies and water and so forth. And I know Khartoum obviously takes the focus, but this is much, much more because there are villages and towns and cities just being ravaged in fighting. You've got the militia burning down refugee camps, places where humanitarian shelter has been uh, been set up. And so, you know, uh, there, it is so volatile that even areas where people think they can get help, they, they, they simply can't. Right. I mean, the fighting is at the moment most intense in Khartoum and in different parts of Darfur. Um, there's also, of course, um, lots of people at different borders, particularly the Egyptian border, who are trying to get in but are being denied the right to uh, seek asylum. And they're also being denied humanitarian assistance. So we heard, for example, from a friend that uh, his relative who's in her 30s died of sheer heat exhaustion and dehydration at the Egyptian border. Um, and so I think one of the things that we're really calling for at the moment is a kind of coordinated international humanitarian response to, um, you know, get uh, open up corridors to get humanitarian assistance to the places where people are most impacted. And I will say, I mean, there's parts of Sudan that are safe. There are uh, mm. people that are trying to get there, but the routes out of Khartoum and Darfur to those towns and cities and regions um, are unsafe. And so, uh, you know, part of what has been frustrating for me to see is that the international community was able to leverage uh, its power to uh, get its foreign nationals out through a kind of ceasefire. They were able to pressure these yeah. uh, war criminals who are uh, at war, you know, fighting each other to put the ceasefire in place. But they have not used that leverage yet 
to um, pressure the generals to put uh, a more permanent ceasefire in place that would allow these safe routes out of these um, hard-hit areas um, and that would allow food and medicine and water to get into uh, the places where people most need them. Yeah, and there is criticism as to why we waited. I mean, like Afghanistan, where the warnings were there and we just didn't go in time, and then it was too late. The country was falling by the time we get planes in and we have to abandon uh, the mission. And so here we are again where I think the warnings were there that that instability was growing and we didn't go in and we certainly didn't put in um, more resources. And so Canadians had to turn to other countries. Did you have any sense, doctor, when you got there that there was this instability? I assume most people wouldn't have gone if they thought this was going to happen. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I, of course, you know, this transitional period has been, uh, there's been political instability for sure. There have been tensions brewing between uh, these two generals that, um, you know, there was a coup in October of 2021. And mm. um, there have been tensions between them ever since. But we were really moving towards the formation of a transitional government. We were sort of coming to the end of a protracted uh, negotiation process and political agreement that was about to be signed or the formation of a, of a uh, transitional government that would lead us to kind of free democratic elections. And so I didn't personally see this coming. I mean, certainly not in the form that it took, you know, I mean, uh, like just uh, that, that we would get caught up in this uh, senseless, intense uh, violence, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you get out of the country. You're now here. Others uh, have gone now, but there are still couple of hundred Canadians uh, that won't be able to get out, may not be able to get out at all. And then you still have family. You and others have uh, a family directly in the path of all of this. And so are you still fighting to get them out? Do you feel that it's too late? I mean, what kind of thoughts go through? Do you feel like this will come to an end? How do you see what is going on here? Or is this going to continue to spread through the region? I mean, in terms of my own family, you know, uh, most... Even my aunt and uncle who are in this area of Khartoum that, are, that is hard hit, that are still sheltering in place, they didn't want to leave. Um, and, and, you know, I think uh, there are lots of people who don't want to leave the country. They want to get to a safer place within the country. They want the fighting to stop, but they're not necessarily trying to leave the country. And I think I'm trying to do, along with many other Sudanese, as much as we can to support them. Um, the banking system has shut down, although it started to open up in Port Sudan, so we're trying to get resources there. We are really trying to fill a gap here that was left, um, sort of a vacuum that was left behind with all these international aid agencies leaving Sudan, right? It's the neighborhood resistance committees, the kind of ordinary citizens who are at great risk are doing all this life-saving work of distributing food and water, of, of uh, you know, coordinating safe routes out of these hard-hit neighborhoods. Um, those are the people that need our support at the moment, and that's kind of what we're focusing on um, yeah, so I mean, I think for me at the moment, the, the part of what I want to kind of the message that I want to get across is that we're not asking for the international community to save us. We're not asking for more international intervention. The closing of borders, right? The denial, uh, denying people the right to seek asylum, the support mm-hmm. that uh, both the RSF and the SAF, these two warring factions, are getting through Libya and Egypt. They're getting fuel, they're getting arms. Uh, that are in turn supported by external actors, that is a form of international intervention that is damaging, that needs to stop. Um, and so for me, the, the key factor here is any international engagement um, needs to be, you know, to put pressure to stop the violence, but it also needs to be guided by Sudanese people, by the people on the ground who are most affected by this, who for the most part during this protracted negotiation process have been 
neglected and sidelined and, and kind of called unrealistic and naive because they've been calling for a full transition to civilian rule from the very beginning. And, and it's quite clear now, given the situation we're in, that these war criminals should have never been at the negotiation table. They should have never been trusted to lead us um, uh, towards uh, democratic elections because they're, they're not interested in that, clearly, you know. Well, I know that uh, once you got back on Canadian soil, uh, you had a lot of kind of um, maybe even just verbal uh, assistance and uh, keeping your spirits high, getting out of there. And now that you're here, I know that you want to make sure that you do your part in uh, spreading that message. So I do appreciate you, uh, you chatting with us and telling us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That is Dr. Nisreen Alameen, uh, who uh, just got back. And there you go. Um, not sure where this one's going, but certainly... I think uh, the doctor laid it out. Once again, though, I think we just uh, went too late. And we've done that too many times.